Home, Environment, and Colonialism. What I, what I thought I knew before I went there and what I knew after is just night and day. Um, and Inuit have taught me so much about the limits of my own knowledge and also about empathy and about um, the impacts that other people's decisions have had on their lives. A conversation with Karen Rutledge about her new book on 19th century Inuit and American encounters. I'm Sean Karaj, and you're listening to episode 68 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. What makes a place a home? This is a question that surprisingly few environmental historians have asked. And yet, environment plays an enormous role in shaping understandings of the places we call home. Karen Rutledge's new book, Do You See Ice? Inuit and Americans at Home and Away, attempts to explain how people construct ideas of home and the various ways in which the environment influences those ideas. This innovative book explores critical issues at the heart of the history of modern colonialism and situates the environment as a crucial factor in shaping cultural concepts of belonging, safety, and comfort. To learn more, I spoke with Karen. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. I am Karen Routledge, and I am a historian for Parks Canada, In and I, I've just this week moved to Whitehorse, Yukon. We are so glad you're able to record this interview, Karen, right on the heels of uh, moving into the north. Um, And uh, that's, uh, you know, part of the subject of your book is thinking about northern environments and southern environments and the relationships between the people from those two places. Um, So I wanted to start the interview by asking you... um, What led you to decide on focusing on the idea of home as a way of studying Inuit-American relations? Yeah, that's interesting. So I actually didn't start out with that plan at all. Um, This book is based on my dissertation, and I wrote my entire dissertation with the theme of alternative Arctic survival stories and ideas of survival. Um, then when I submitted the manuscript to University of Chicago Press, the two anonymous readers came back and said, we don't think that theme works. And I completely freaked out and thought, well, it doesn't work. what am <laughs> wow. I going to do? Um, and then I reread my manuscript and I realized that they were right and that what I was really talking about was home. And home was everywhere in the manuscript. It was mentioned everywhere in passing, but it just wasn't anything that I pulled out and reflected on. So um, then with my editor's approval, I revised the book to be about ideas of home. Um, I won't lie, it wasn't a small revision, but it did actually come <laughs> together fairly quickly because of because so much of what I wanted to say was already buried in the book. That's so interesting. I had no idea that emerged from the peer review for the book. Yeah, yeah. Love the reviewers. <laughs> didn't didn't love them when I got those reviews back, but they were completely right. So well, it, was, I, it was a good process. I think the framing for the book is 
like utterly original in environmental history. I couldn't think of anything else that came close to um, addressing the idea of home as explicitly as you do in this book. So maybe um, could you tell listeners a little bit about what you discovered in this process in terms of how environment influences or shapes ideas of home? Yeah, so I I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily a traditional environmental historian or, or that this book fits perfectly into the category of environmental history, but certainly environmental historians have been really formative in influencing my thinking and um, environmental history is what made me really want to study how humans live and find their place in, in different environments. Um And as I was revising this book, I did start to wonder why environmental historians who are so good at studying how people have changed their surroundings and been changed by them, um, why there isn't more environmental history scholarship dealing with with home as an idea and a place. And I don't mean that there's none. Um, Certainly, there's quite a bit of work on people adapting to new environments, especially in um, like Joy Parr's work on high modern mega projects and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I started to wonder um, so much academic scholarship on home is about the, is about the domestic. And I think that might reflect the shift that happened in, in 19th century North American and European society where um, people gradually began to place more value on the household and family at the expense of the community or larger landscape. But even as that happened, people's sense of home and their impact on others was never obviously contained within four walls or among immediate family. So I, I did really want to argue that there is a place for environmental historians to look more broadly at the idea of home. Um, You know, events that seem to happen outside the home, like resource exploitation or natural disasters or climate, so-called natural disasters or climate change, (laughs) they're really part of our identities and our thoughts and our most, are, are just our home spaces. And in a lot of ways, the evidence that you uncover in the book shows conflict, I guess, between uh, outsiders' views of home and insiders' views of home? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, for most of the book, I write about people who were far from their homes. And I really wonder why there's no obvious English antonym for home, because I I never (laughs) knew what to say. But this this feeling of unhome is very pervasive in the book. Um, And yeah, so the you're right. I, I think the ch- the change in natural environment it's, that people experience in the book, it, it really throws them off. And um, so, for example, for, as, as you were just saying, Sean, like there's this real tension between different views of a place. So American whalers who come to Cumberland Sound, most of them they that that left written records, they remark on things like, there's no trees, there's no farms, you can't grow food here. Whereas for Inuits, the food is there. It's in the ocean, and well, mostly in the ocean, and on the and the, somewhat on the land. And um, so, Inuit, when they go to the U.S., some of them are surprised that Americans can live so far back from the sea because they think, mm-hmm. well, how can, how can they live? How can they survive when they're not next to the ocean? So, yeah, I 
um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's, I, sorry, I'm not sure if, there, if you have any follow-up questions on that. Well, I thought that you made a really strong case that the case study in your book can be instructive for broader thinking about the relationship between or among the environment, a sense of home, and colonialism. Mm-hmm. That the perception of a place as unhome, as you say, or foreign or strange, and then the imposition of that feeling onto the people who do live there in the case of American whalers, and they're thinking about how Inuit live in northern environments, um, is easily, I think, transferable to other kinds of colonial encounters. Yeah, I I think that's really true. And I think that plays out in so many ways. Um, So for example, Americans in the 19th century, they're, they're moving around more than they ever have. And I think they're quite fascinated by this perception they have that Indigenous people are nomadic because they don't spend, they generally don't spend one year in a single dwelling. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that view that, oh, we can't feel at home anywhere, but these Indigenous people, they don't really have a home, they can. That combined with this view of the Arctic as monolithic, that leads to a lot of a lot of ideas that you can just pick up Indigenous people and relocate them anywhere. And that they'll be fine, um, which of course right, is not which, true. Which gets directly to the next question I wanted to ask you about mm-hmm. this idea of nomadism. Do you think that your book challenges that concept, at least the historical idea of nomadism, nomadism among um, Americans and uh, and Europeans? Yeah, I I'm not sure. I, I think it challenges some scholarship. I, I really drawn Hugh Brody's book, The Other Side of Eden. Um, in that book, he argues that as a whole, hunter-gatherers are less nomadic than farmers. Um, more specifically, that mm-hmm. hunter-gatherer societies, like Inuit societies, are less less nomadic than like an agricultural-based society. And it's a very general argument. I don't, I don't think it stands up across all times and places, but I think it works really well in 19th century North America. Um, so yeah, I mean the U.S. and Canada and many other places are, as we all know, resettled by farming peoples through these long-distance mass migrations, and sometimes the migrations are voluntary. Some are the result of very limited choices, like intense poverty or persecution, and some of it is completely forced, with slavery being the most obvious example. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think in in the time period that I write about, and I, I also draw a lot on Susan Matt's book on homesickness here, um, as the 19th century wears on, more and more people immigrate to the United States, and there's a lot of pressure to move once you're there as well. Um, it becomes more expected, especially for the middle class, that you would leave home to make a home. So mm-hmm. whether that's that you move out west and get some cheap land that's just been dispossessed, or if you work on, if you like, sign on to an Arctic whaling ship to save money to return home and buy a house and get married, uh, there's this sense that you, that, that being mobile is the key to success. Um, by contrast, so Inuit, they moved across the Arctic from Alaska all the way to Greenland hundreds of years ago, 
mm-hmm. possibly in the span of a single generation. Um, I'm not an archaeologist, so I'm not an expert, but I think that's right. the latest thinking. And um, since that time, their society has been much more stable. I mean, being mobile is a part of of being of living a traditional Inuit life. Um, people travel long distances and still do. Um, but mm-hmm. they travel along routes into hunting areas, usually that they or others in the group know about. So their home area is vast, but it's still a home area and place, a home area and place. Um, it, yeah, sorry. The go arguments ahead, that you make about mobility, I think, are really important. Um, I mean, to some extent, it feels ironic um, to read American whalers describing Inuit as, you know, a people without a home migrating and moving as nomads, but that in terms of total distance traveled in a lifetime, the whalers may be traveling far more than, uh, than the Inuit. And it reminded me a bit of, um, Sherry Olson and Patricia Thornton's book, uh, on Montreal peopling the North American city, where they found that the populations of, of, um, population of Montreal in the 19th century, the emerging industrial city, um, was far more fluid than urban historians had previously thought, that there were people moving in and out of the city at such a rapid pace that the idea of a stable urban population in the period from 1840 to 1900 um, just isn't true. Mm, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I think... I think um, well, when I say Americans in this case, I can extend it to Canada as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, North North Americans who are immigrants or descendants of immigrants are just becoming incredibly mobile in the 19th century more than they ever had been before, and so it is it is it starts to become the norm to move on. Um, and and again, I really Susan Matt's book is really excellent on on tracing this pattern and how people as they become they they become very obsessed with homesickness and home in a way that they maybe hadn't before because they're forced to think about it all the time. Right. So this book does a great job thinking broadly about Inuit American relations, but I think what makes it a compelling read are the individuals in the case studies in the book, particularly the story of Hannah and uh, Ipervik. Um, So I, I wanted to ask you how you came across them, uh, tell us a little bit about them and, and the sources that you used to study their lives. Yeah, so that's interesting because when you say that, I don't actually remember how I came across them. <laughs> um, they were, it would have certainly been when I started reading in 19th century Arctic literature because Hannah and Ipirvik, they're also known as, um, Hannah's also known as Tukulitu, Ipirvik is also known as Ibirbing and Joe. Um, to, to Americans at that time for a while, they would have been probably household names and they were the two most famous Inuit of their time. Um, and that's, that's partly because they traveled around the Northeast with the explorer, Charles Francis Hall. Um, they came South with him after his first expedition and they, they were very instrumental in helping him raise money for his second expedition. As I talk about in the book, I, I'm not convinced that they were as keen on that as he was but um they they did that and they also then they became even more famous when they joined his third expedition um on the polaris and they were separated from their ship and and they along with half the crew drifted for i think six and a half months on an ice floe from 
off the coast of Greenland to off the coast of Labrador. And right. um, they were rescued and, and brought, well, they, they came back to the U.S. And after that, they were, I mean, that story made the news everywhere. So they would have been very well known for a while. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't remember exactly where I came across them, but and I knew that I wanted to write a chapter about Inuit in the United States because I wanted to show that I, I believed it was true. And I still think it is that for Inuit life in the U S could be just as, as disconcerting and strange and um, difficult as life in the Arctic could be for Americans who went there for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I initially thought, oh, I'll write a chapter that was more like the whaling chapter that didn't focus on just one family. But Hannah and Apirvik are, are quite unique in the amount of information that's available about them. Um, there, there are many other Inuit who came south, but we don't tend to know nearly as much about them. And um, what we do know is largely thanks to historians like Ken Harper um, who's spent a lot of time trying to recover whatever he can about these people and uh, also tiny archives. Like there's a, there's a place called the Indian and Colonial Research Center in Connecticut that has saved a lot of um, recollections about Inuit who came to the South. And they also, they were an amazing source for me because they have letters that Hannah wrote. Um, she became literate, literate in English and, she wrote letters to her friend, Sarah Buddington, who was the wife of a whaling captain. Um, So her letters are there. And uh, the other way that I could know so much about their lives in comparison to other Inuit is that uh, Charles Francis Hall kept really extensive diaries. And he wrote um, when he was with them, which was a lot of their time in the U.S., he kind of chronicled their daily lives. So um, and then because they were so famous, there's a lot of newspaper articles and other th- reports of the day about them. So it was this chapter, I think, is in some ways the one I like the best, but also the one that makes me the most wary because I did have to read so many sources against the grain and try to figure out what was missing or left out of them. And as other historians know when you do that, you can never be sure if you get it right or not. Um, but in the end, I just felt like their story was so compelling. And uh, and I, I really wanted to try to share it and figure out what their time would have been, might have been like in the U.S. It's absolutely compelling. And I think um, it's this turn in the narrative of the book that makes it quite u- unique because... Um, it's not hard to find scholarship on um, colonial relations between imperial powers and indigenous people situated within colonized spaces. Um, but uh, there are fewer studies that look at indigenous peoples at the metropole. The one that stands out is Cole Thrush's work yeah. on indigenous people in London. That's um, exactly and what so, I, he, he, that's a great book, yeah. Yeah, and so this this seems like it 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 brings these two bodies of scholarship together by comparing those experiences in a single book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And I yeah, like like um, like you, I was also really taken with Cole Thrush's work. So the book takes another turn, uh, I think, in a really interesting <laughs> way. You have um, Americans in 
um, indigenous environments. You have indigenous people in colonized American environments. And then you've got this chapter on the high Arctic and the, the Lady Franklin Bay expedition in which you're analyzing Americans and Inuit both in an unfamiliar environment. Um, so what surprised you most about what you found in the evidence in terms of the responses of Americans and indigenous people to the environments of the high Arctic? Yeah. But, um, so I guess, first of all, this was the chapter that really got me thinking about how much the, how much the environment, the physical environment, like the non-human environment interplays with the human environment and with our own minds, like how, how all those things kind of flow through and flow in and out of each other, because there's no question that the land here had a lot of power and both the Inuit and Americans who were there felt it. And mm -hmm. I, I really believe that it, it really shaped their time up there and that they couldn't, they couldn't escape, they, they couldn't escape their feelings and, and the way that they saw that land but it was the way they saw that land was also very much shaped on their own backgrounds and preconceptions of what they would encounter there. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the Inuit, they were from the two Inuit who came on this, or sorry, the two Inuk, I guess that's like a, a dual form. They, they came on this expedition and um, they were hired from much further south in Greenland, possibly not wanting to go it's not completely clear but it's the, the american soldiers who were on the expedition they had all very clearly volunteered um there were many more applicants than were accepted they had written a lot of them had written these kind of pleading letters to the commander asking to be assigned with the two inuit employees that's much less clear <laughs> um they were sort of rounded up by the governor and told they should go um yeah so, sorry, I think I might not be the governor. I may have that wrong. But rounded up by a colonial official, they would have been probably almost certainly very hesitant to say no to. Um, so, the uh, anyway, yeah. So, I think the, the Inuit interpreted this landscape through ideas that they had about areas to the north of where they lived. Um, and so did the Americans, but those ideas were very different. Uh, and, but both of them would, I think would have been very struck by the extremely long period of darkness. Once you're up there, it's, you have almost, I mean, it's not, it's not quite this extreme, but the sun sets in October and I think comes up again in March. So you have a very long period of darkness and a very long period of 24 hour daylight. And, and both of them would have been, uh, would have, both of them were, were very uh, thrown by that because neither of them were used to it. So just, just for comparison, um, where they were stationed in Fort Conger, that's about a thousand kilometers north of Cumberland Sound, I think. So that's like from mm. Toronto to the tip of northern Quebec or from like Toronto to South Carolina. So these are, I mean, these are not the same kind of environment at all, really. Right. I, I remember when I, I, I was really lucky I got to go to not exactly to Fort Conger, but quite close to it for work. And when I was leaving, the park manager said to me, oh, enjoy the jungle. And I thought she was talking about Ottawa, but she was talking about Iqaluit. And she was like, you'll see when you land in Iqaluit, everything is so much more lush there. And of course, there's no there's no trees or anything in Iqaluit, but it's still a really different environment. And I think what, stri what strikes me is that it's really these 
dire tales of polar exploration that come to define what the Arctic is in the minds of 19th century Americans and probably Canadians too. And to some degree, mm-hmm. we still think like of, of these kind of stories today, but this happens so far from the Arctic population centers um, in a place that's really quite different. And it's such an atypical experience. But yeah, it, I mean, it, as a Southern reader, I had difficulty trying to imagine what these places looked like. Um, and I think you have a photograph of the interior of the original um, fort or camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got to that page and I saw the picture, I thought, whoa, this isn't even what I was imagining in my <laughs> mind of how small this space was. Yeah. And that actually, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because the other thing I wanted to say was there, the the interplay between the people in this chapter is so central to people's feelings about the place. And mm-hmm. that really struck me. I mean, you've got, you've got this military discipline and the officers have quite a different lifestyle than the enlisted, the enlisted men. And then the, the two Inuit employees again have, um, I mean, even though, Really, the commander says that they're treated fairly. It's quite clear that they're not. And so by the end of the winter, a lot of people are just being driven crazy by being confined to this cabin. And that's a place where, you know, because they're, they don't, they don't, they're not really fully outfitted to spend a lot of time outdoors in the depths of winter. So they're, they're stuck in the cabin, which is kind of an environmental thing, but then it's, being stuck in the cabin becomes has this very yeah. human dimension and it's bad enough that I remember one one guy as soon as it's warm enough he moves his bed outside he's like I'm out of here I can't yeah. handle this confined quarters but the officers they have their own kind of separate corners where they can go on retreat but the enlisted men are just in bunks and and there are other parts in the book um about I guess a kind of interaction between interior environments and exterior environments. I think about the whaling ships um, and the period of the winter. And then when they're able to, you know, connect with the land again. And then of course, in this chapter, the interior environment and the exterior environment are at play with one another throughout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And then also, sorry, go ahead, Sean. No, 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 go ahead. Oh, I was just thinking how, um, yeah, the the whaling ships, they become a kind of home, but people are only, to the extent that American whalers are successful at being comfortable there, they have to forge relationships outside of that ship to be comfortable. So they have to, they have to meet with Inuit, they have you know, they, if, if they don't trade for fur clothing, they really are basically ship bound in the winter because the outfits they come north with are not comfortable at all um, in, in cold weather. And if they don't forge relationships with Inuit and, you know, supply them with, with Southern food in exchange for supplying their ship with fresh meat, then as, as I write about in the chapter, scurvy is very prevalent on the ships that don't have a steady supply of fresh meat. Um, so I think it just shows how, how home is always about creating relationships beyond the walls as well. Yeah. And that also emerges, I think, in the chapter on Hannah and Ipirvik, that the idea of home or the creation of a sense of home is driven 
by relationships with the environment, but also by relationships with other people who live in those places, friendships that are formed and families that are established, and then the the tragedy of of losing their their um, mm-hmm. a child uh, in that place changes the re- the relationship that they have to the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, and I, I mean, because Hannah and Apirvik left behind relatively few records compared to say Charles Francis Hall, I wasn't able to say as much as, or know as much as I would have liked about their reactions to the environment itself. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, it's something that I think about. And I think, you know, every, every year they basically had one chance to go back to Cumberland Sound. And that was in when the, when the ships were, when the Arctic whaling ships were leaving for the North again. And once that was over, then they, they would, they knew they would have to overwinter again. Um, so you've visited some of the places that you describe in the book. Um, how do you think that those experiences of being there shaped your thinking about these places? Um, yeah, there's, there's no way that I could have written this book without having visited many of the places. And, and I wish that I could have visited even more of them. Um, as far as the, the U.S. places go. Um, so many of the whaling documents are still held in those towns that used to be whaling ports. And I think going there, well, and also when I was there, I was able to visit Hannah's grave and the, and her, her children's, um, sorry, I'm trying to think is, are they, yeah, both of her children are buried in that cemetery. Um, and, to to me that that was very meaningful um being being in those towns also helped me to understand how much whaling history re- really shaped those places and how arctic whaling was really just one small part of a huge worldwide whaling industry that would have so many that it has so many other stories to tell too um so but in particular new london does still ha- feel like it has quite a strong connection, I would say, to the Arctic because of all the Arctic ships that left out of that port. Um, sorry, go ahead. You, you described part of your method for reading sources as reading against the grain. But when I read this book, I thought, and, and I will be using this in a course one day, um, that this is an excellent example of using empathy as a methodology in historical analysis. The Throughout the entire book, it just kept coming back to me as I was reading this, that you were in many ways trying to look at these sources and to find the people in these sources and to try and understand what they thought, how they felt, how they saw the world. Um, how do you think that that kind of approach could be used more in historical scholarship of kind of embedding a kind of empathetic analysis uh, into reading sources? Yeah. So there, that's, it's interesting. And it isn't something that I, that I can say that I really consciously intended to do, but other people have also told me that. Um, So there's, I mean, there has been quite a bit of academic discussion on the limits and benefits of historical empathy. And it's something that I think about quite a bit in my work with Parks Canada, because we're always trying to find ways to connect with visitors. And a lot of them arrive with very little knowledge of ours, like of the place where they come to or of Canadian history. Um, and it's always a struggle to find that balance between 
wanting people to empathize with people in the past, but also wanting them to understand that they can't just put themselves in that person's shoes, that people in the past thought and behaved differently from themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. I think for academic historians, it's, it's easier in some ways to apply empathy because academic readers really expect you to provide a lot of historical context. So I guess in my book, I started with the assumption that everyone I studied probably was trying to do what they thought was the best course of action. Um, And -hmm. if their decisions seemed crazy to me, then I really tried to understand why. Um, One of the hardest people to have empathy for in my book for me was Charles Francis Hall. And Mm -hmm. he was the explorer that, um, that traveled a lot with Hannah and Apervik and my earlier drafts were harsher on him, but in the end, I, I think I portray him more as single-minded and driven and self-centered rather than malevolent. Um, Mm -hmm. But that doesn't absolve him. Like even though we can't judge him by today's standards of racism, I think a lot of the previous work on him has failed to deal with just the huge impact that his decisions had on the lives of many people, including Hannah and Apirvik. So in that sense, I think writing history with empathy also makes me think more critically about my own actions. Like what kinds of things am I doing now that may not be evil or Mm ill-intentioned, but that are having negative and lasting impacts. Um, So yeah, basically if people's decisions seemed, if, if I didn't understand someone's decisions, I tried to understand in the book, why would they behave that way? And Mm -hmm. In the end, though, it's it's always imperfect because I admit I still feel a huge gulf between myself and both the Americans and Inuit that I wrote about. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm so distant from a 19th century Inuk or a 19th century Arctic whaler. So, yeah, I think, but I, I think generally it's, it is something, it is so easy to be critical of people in the past and it's really important to try to imagine why they behaved the way they did. And only then can we start to think critically about ourselves as well. And I think there's almost a meta narrative in the book too, because as a reader, I could see the ways in which you were trying to understand the decisions and choices that historical actors made. But in the process, I could see the ways in which some of those historical actors weren't using that kind of empathetic thought in their <laughs> own actions and behavior. Yeah, that's that's very true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so you were asking about how, um, how visiting places I d- that I wrote about in the book shaped the book. And I just wanted to say that visiting Cumberland Sound and spending, I I spent several summers there and I've returned almost every year for my job with parks and that there's, this would have been an incredibly different book. I I don't think I could possibly have written it without having spent time there. And I know it's not always easy for historians to spend time in the places that they study, especially when they're far from where we live. But um, I the first time I went to Cumberland Sound was as a student on a field school with the University of Manitoba. And I spent the I spent six weeks there, um, including one week out on the land with Inuit families. And then 
I went straight from there to New Bedford and started reading whaling records, some of which were written in the same season that I was just there. And the disconnect between how I had seen Inuit living in that place and how American whalers were describing it as this, you know, totally foreign, um, inhospitable place. It was so stark and it made me see the records in a very different way and think more deeply about how two different, two people can have completely different ideas about the exact same environment. Um, so yeah, I, and, and also, spending time with Inuit. I mean, I, I, chapter four relies on oral histories, but even if I could have accessed those oral histories somewhere else, I wouldn't have had the, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like I know everything about that place because there's so much that I don't know, but, uh, and I'm very aware that I've only, you know, the longest I've spent there at a time is two months, but it's what I, what I thought I knew before I went there and what I knew after is just night and day. Um, and Inuit have taught me so much about the limits of my own knowledge and also about empathy and about um, the impacts that other people's decisions have had on their lives. So I, I just, I, I think to, to the extent that we can, I think it's always really important to spend time in the places that we write about. Well, I, I think there's a lot that uh, historians in a wide range of fields can take from this book. And of course, for our listeners who are interested in environmental history, uh, they should take a look uh, over at the uh, University of Chicago Press for Do You See Ice? Inuit and Americans at Home and Away. Karen, thanks so much for telling us about your book. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Karen Rutledge and me, Sean Courage. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast with your favorite podcast player, and leave comments. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash nature's past. You can always find out more about environmental history research in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Nature's Past. Nature's Past.